before I talk anything about myself, this is a great opportunity for me to talk about your pastor here. <laughs> so we met 35 years ago. Yes, we are getting old. And it's so neat to see the youth up here on stage worshiping because that's how I was introduced to Brent, uh, playing his bass up on stage with the youth group. And that was my first introduction to Brent. Uh, and um, even though it's been 35 years, it's so neat to reconnect and see that Brent is the same person that I met 35 years ago. And even as we were reminiscing about uh, all of our friends from the past, it's not that easy to say that about a lot of people we know from our past. But Brent is the same guy that I met 35 years ago. And one of the things that impressed me so much as a young guy when I met him was his desire to serve God. And that stuck with me, and I remembered that about Brent. I thought, that passion, that desire to serve God is going to see fulfillment. And so as a type of prophecy that's been fulfilled, it's so neat to see uh, that uh, just to be here uh, 35 years later. And one other thing to say as well is that what you see is what you get with Brent. And I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of uh, different ministers and people throughout my life. And what you see on the platform is not always what you see behind the stage. And so you are very privileged to have a man on stage that is the same on and off. And so I wanted to say that before I say anything about myself. So. Uh, Brett mentioned that one of my nicknames was kind of end times. Well, there was another a nickname or saying that I had back in my youth group days. And this was called Bachelor to the Rapture. And uh, I now have eight children. Eight children. Eight children. So uh, there's a danger about presuming upon God. <laughs> and uh, as a young guy, I found that um, I would uh, love to read books. And I would, um, I think my Christian bookstore in town took advantage of me because they knew that if they came out with a new prophecy title, I would buy it. They would just order it in advance knowing that I would read it. And I found myself being a little bit swayed uh, with every new book that came out. And I would all of a sudden think, oh, well, this is a, presents a really good perspective. And I found myself adopting different prophetic perspectives. Now, on one hand, that's good to explore what Scripture has to say and to be open to different perspectives. But I found myself swaying back and forth too much with what to believe. Uh, and so it wasn't until I uh, really took the time to study the Bible systematically uh, and was introduced to Chuck Missler through Koinonia House, which is fairly well known in the Calvary movement. He was uh, at the beginning. Uh, and he developed in me a love uh, for systematic teaching uh, and to really adopt that balanced perspective. Uh, and as a young person, bashed with the rapture, I, I got excited and, and tossed to and fro with every new view. And uh, Chuck really helped me to get a balanced perspective. So when we're looking at prophetic topics, uh, it's fun to speculate a little bit, but it is important to have that balanced view and to come back to Scripture. What does Scripture say about this? Um, and so when you focus a lot on news events, it has to come back to Scripture. And that's one of the things that uh, Chuck taught me. Um, just a little bit more about myself. I grew up in Richmond. Uh, I come back now, and I don't recognize Richmond. Yes. Uh, and uh, so I have that Canadian perspective of growing up in Canada, but I've lived in the U.S. Uh, for the last 10 years in a deep red northern Idaho, uh, and so I come to uh, the U.S. with that Canadian perspective. I also have that U.S. perspective that is, is so prominent in northern Idaho. 
Uh, and one advantage I have to living there is um, I'm not yet a U.S. citizen. So when people ask who I vote for, <laughs> I tell them I'm not allowed to. Uh, and, and that's a great uh, thing to be able to have. So, um, <laughs> so I, I spent about 14 years working for Chuck Missler. Uh, and while I was working for Chuck, uh, he saw my love of news and he encouraged me to uh, start a ministry called Prophecy News Watch. Uh, and its entire focus is, well, I should say, Chuck really installed in me two values of prophecy. You need to understand your Bible and to know what it says about the end times. But there's a second part. You need to know what's happening in the world. And that actually is not so easy with the amount of bias you find in the media, let alone news sources that even tell you what's happening. I wonder how many of you know that 165 Nigerian Christians were killed on Christmas Eve? Oh, that's awesome that you guys have some sources that are telling you that, but most of the news will not tell you stories like that, and there's a bias there. Sometimes that bias can come not only from what they're saying, but from what they're not telling you. And so uh, that's kind of uh, the, uh, the, the difference that Chuck uh, really installed in me. I have that U.S.-Canadian perspective. I, I think the, my background has given me a bit of a, a balanced view that I didn't have growing up. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so that started Prophecy News Watch. Uh, we have, I think, I think, a business card at we the do. back. We go to the Welcome Center. We got business cards. Take one of those home with you. The website is on there. And so Cade sends out a daily email of top kind of news stories uh, relating to a prophetic nature. And uh, so I get these in my inbox each day, and I just love it to just kind of get a quick uh, glance at some of the things that are going on in the world, and it just... Uh, he does it all for us. It's awesome. So check out the card, get that, and uh, check out the, the website, and then subscribe to the email because uh, you'll get it daily sent to you. So as we approach uh, 2024, you are going to hear a lot in the news about predictions. What are people predicting for the economy, for the country? What's going on? And so we have something that I would like you to participate in, uh, and then do do this, even though it involves just a slight bit of math. Um, this is good to, to wake you up this morning. Yeah. Uh, but with predictions, percentages are important. So it's important you all participate so we can get a good percentage here. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to slowly go through this, stretch your brain a little bit. So think of a number between 1 and 10. That shouldn't be too hard. Right. Once you have that number in your brain, this is the tough part. Uh -oh. Multiply it by 9. Okay. If it's a two-digit number, then add it together. Subtract five from that number in your head. Hold on, give me a moment. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Now think of the letter in the alphabet that corresponds with the number you are thinking about. For example, if you were thinking of the number one, that would be A. B would be 2, C would be 3, D would be 4, and so on. So I'll give you a chance to get that letter going. Now, if you have that letter, I'd like you to think of a country that starts with the letter you are thinking of. Hopefully your geographical knowledge <laughs> is up there enough yeah. to think of a country. Now I'd like you to spell the name of that country in your head. 
Think about the second letter in that country's name that you've come up with. So the second letter. Now quickly think of an animal whose name begins with that letter. So you should yeah. now have both an animal and a country. And I'm sorry to tell you there are no elephants in Denmark. What? <laughs> now by a show of hands, how many of you had elephants in Denmark? Yeah. Okay, okay. All the people that can do math. Yeah. I, I hesitate to ask how many of you didn't because sometimes we get really strange answers and it's clear the math didn't quite line up. Um, when I spent some time in the Kootenays, one of the things that often came up was no elk in Denmark because of a bit more of a hunting culture there. Yes. Uh, and so I used mathematical probability to make a prediction. And that's not that hard to do, really. Uh, and you're going to hear probably a lot of predictions about what's going to happen in this next year that really aren't based on math at all. Uh, it's just simply someone's uh, gut feeling. And I want you to understand that prophecy is not just prediction. And yes, sometimes we do use our best educated guess to understand what's going on and how it relates to God's word. But prophecy is not prediction, and I think that's important to distinguish. Prophecy is history in advance. And the only one who can possibly share history in advance is someone who knows that, that history. And it shows omniscience and omnipresence, or omni, omnipresent. In other words, that God inhabits eternity. He knows the beginning from the end. Revelation 22:13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega being the end. So God makes his claim, I am the beginning and the end. But how does he authenticate that? How does he prove to us that he is, or he sees the beginning from the end? And a, a, an illustration I love to use because my children understand it, and that's a great place to start, is parades. I grew up watching parades, I love parades. And when you watch a parade, you see it sequentially. You see the beginning, and you see each, parade, uh, each float go by one float at a time, kind of like our life. But when you look at God's perspective, or, and I, when I say perspective, I don't mean that God is just high up in the sky looking down on us. I mean that God is outside of time itself. And that's an important thing to understand in terms of prophecy and how he sees all this at once, because we can't see time that way. But when you look at a parade, it kind of gives us just a bit of an understanding of that perspective, because if you're up in a helicopter looking at a parade, you can see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. And that kind of gives a bit of a perspective of how God sees that. And that should give us a lot of um, trust in what God is saying. And one of the ways he proves to us that I have that beginning, middle, and end is with looking back at fulfilled prophecy. When we look at the Old Testament prophecies, it sets a foundation for our trust in God's promises for the future. And so we have um, just a short clip I want to show you guys that demonstrates how fulfilled prophecy should give us trust and confidence in the future prophecies yet to come. So we're going to show this clip to you. Hey Google, 
define probability. This is the definition of probability. The quality or state of being probable, the extent to which something is likely to happen or be the case. Thank you. I aim to please. She's always so kind. Anyways, um, I have 10 coins here and um, I'm gonna mark one coin. And um, well, I'm gonna put all of these in this envelope. Shake it up a little bit. And what is the chance that I'm gonna take out the marked coin? One in 10 chances. Let's try. Nope. Failed. Okay, I, I suck at this, so yeah, let's, just, let's just move on. Jesus said 2,000 years ago, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, so Jesus said if you really study the scriptures, you should realize that there are so many prophecies that are being fulfilled in front of your eyes through me. Our question is, are there prophecies that have been fulfilled through the life of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then Jesus is the promised Messiah. And God himself gave those prophecies to the prophets in the Old Testament. Professor Stoner has been the head of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College for many years, and uh, more recently at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Professor Stoner, in addition to being an expert in the field of mathematics, has also had another interest that particularly fits our subject, for he's been interested in Bible prophecy. Dr. Stoners and 600 other university students took the challenge to calculate the probability of one person fulfilling all the prophecies that are prophesied about the Messiah. I took several prophecies and submitted them to some 12 different classes, representing some 600 college students and asked them to carefully examine the prophecies and produce the estimates that they thought were conservative. After about a year's research, they came up with values affecting the prophecies. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be crucified. Now, of course, there are many babies who have been born in Bethlehem, and certainly there are many men who have been crucified. But if we take all the prophecies together in one package, now, things become interesting when we are counting the probability of one man fulfilling the, those prophecies. Dr. Stoner's calculations were conservative and reasonable. For the first round, they considered eight most well-known prophecies. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be crucified, that he would be betrayed for 30 silvers by a friend. After hours and hours of calculations, they found that the chance of any man that might have lived down to the 20th century and fulfilled all prophecies, all eight prophecies, is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now that's one with 17 zeros. Incredible. To help you visualize this number, if we laid these coins on the face of the UK and Ireland, they would cover the two islands 135 centimeters deep. What if I marked one coin and hit it somewhere on the face of the UK or Ireland, blindfolded you, put you on a helicopter, and uh, 
or you can land anywhere you want and the good luck with finding the coin but you have only one chance to find it what's the chance that you, you're gonna find it it's one in ten to the 17th power just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them fulfilled in one man's life from their time to the 20th century now dr stoners didn't stop here he continued his calculations and added eight more prophecies to his list now the chance that one man could fulfill 16 prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, um, I can describe this number to you, but I need some inspiration. Let's go. So, pretty fascinating. When you look at that number, astronomical number, 1 in 8 prophecies, and then he moved on to 1 in 16. Now just think about that, because Jesus fulfilled at least... 300 Old Testament prophecies. Think about how large that number would get if we began to continue on that calculation. So why is that important for us to see that? So the video continues uh, to, I think, up to about 48 prophecies. And at that point, he's using protons and trying to describe finding a proton in the entire universe. It just gets astronomical. It, it, it's just beyond all probability. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we look at it from a math perspective. Um, I, I think there's a phrase that Chuck used, I'm more sure that Jesus is the Messiah than of my own existence. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, there's some truth to that because it mathematically is just outstanding. Uh, and it gives us confidence in the Old Testament prophecies that God says, yeah, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I know the beginning and the end. And, and he's shown that through Old Testament prophecy. Yeah. And that gives us hope for understanding what Jesus says about the future. And sometimes when you say prophecy should give us hope, most people's perspective of the end times is doom and gloom. Oh, don't talk to me about that. But this idea that prophecy should bring us hope is based in the fact that God is a promise keeper. He made all these promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah to come. He has made many promises about what is to come. And when you personalize prophecy, and if you take nothing else away from prophetic topics, understand that God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel, for this world, but now personalize that. Some of those promises are to you as individuals. God has made specific promises to you about what you believe in him. And so if you can be confident in the Old Testament prophecies, you should also be confident in God's promises to you. And so if you take nothing else away this morning, when you think of all the stuff going on, remember God has a purpose and a plan. I missed all the chaos. And that's another thing too. When you look at the news, most people look at the news and it's just news. And for the most part, news is generally bad. Um, but when you look at it through a prophetic lens, you can see that God is at work and God will often use very challenging and difficult circumstances for something good. So remember that for yourself when studying prophecy, that it should give you hope. And if it's not giving you hope, yeah. your perspective is probably not correct. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's why we love to do these things. It's not to sensationalize the news. It's not to bring up things to cause people to freak out. And sadly, like Kay was saying, a lot of people that you know, kind of get into uh, prophecy, they begin to see the direction the world is going in, and it leads them to greater fear. 
and greater worry and anxiety when the opposite should be true, is it gives us greater uh, trust in just that the Lord is at work, the Lord is on the move, because he's already shown us and revealed us that this is the way that things are going to be going. So when we look at prophecy and why we love to talk about these things, is it's not to just scare us at, at all, not at all, not at all, but it's to cause us to have a greater trust and dependency in the Lord and in what he's doing, because he's the one that's ordering all these things. He's like you said earlier, he's seeing the beginning from the end. He's outside of time. And that's something that should give us confidence and indeed give us hope. And, uh, and yet, sadly, I think what we see oftentimes now among Christians and in churches is that there's a moving away uh, from these things. I think you got some, some stats and things like that that reveal that. Yeah, and before we look at those, one of the things that I often get is emails saying, why do you just share bad news? And, and if you do subscribe to our newsletter, it, because it's like the news you watch on TV, we try and inform people of what's going on. Most of the news is bad before it gets better. And that's why you need that biblical perspective. And so when you're uh, uh, paying attention to the news, you need to have that biblical foundation. But for those of you who have that biblical foundation but want to ignore what's happening in the news because it's so bad, you need to be watching as well. And I say that because there are so many people today who are not believers, but still have that thread of, well, we're going to look at some stats here, and you'll be surprised at how many non-believers have views that you can use to reach and talk to them about prophetic topics. Um, so here's some stats, and these are pretty recent. This is from November. 38% um, of adults, this is the general population, and this, these are U.S. stats, by the way, um, say that we believe we're living in the end times. 30, oh, see my glasses, I, 39. 39. 39, 39 of adult, percent of adults say they believe we're living in the end times. That's a pretty high number. Um, interestingly enough, 47% of Christians say we're living in the end times. And that's a bit of a, a low number, maybe. Uh, additionally, we have this belief that Jesus will return to earth someday. 55% of adults agree. Now, that's pretty amazing. Now, there is some cross-correlation. Even Islam believes that Jesus will return to earth one day. So there is some cross-correlation there. The good news is 90% of Christians believe that earth, uh, Jesus will return to earth someday. That's, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah. That well, 10% I'm not so sure about. Um, also, we have Jesus will return in my lifetime. 10% of non-believers believe that. Uh, and we have 14% of believers. So there's some really close numbers there that is quite interesting. That, and that last one's very kind of telling to us is that we see a very low percentage of Christians today that are living with an expectancy that Jesus could come at any time. You know, only, only 14%, whereas that's the rest of the percentage of Christians, whatever that number is, uh, 80, I'm not even going to try. Okay. Um, <laughs> the rest of them are, are, are just going, it's not really important for me what I, what I think about these things because it's not really pertinent in my life at this time and uh, in the present. So they're kind of living without any kind of expectancy and uh, looking ahead and watching for that imminent return of Jesus. That's pretty telling. 
And I think along with these stats, especially the last one, um, about only 14% of believers expecting Christ to return in their lifetime is probably from a lack of teaching from the pulpit. Uh, and so our next slide will show us what do pastors believe about Bible prophecy. And this is very interesting because this reflects uh, in the congregations. Um, 64% say their church do not require their staff to hold, hold specific end-time beliefs. And I'll say that there is certainly a lot of um, room for some flexibility on some prophetic issues. And I think we do need to keep an open mind that when someone presents uh, another biblical perspective, that we respect that and we be open to what they're saying. But that being said, there needs to be some unity on prophetic topics because if, if Brent gets up today and teaches you uh, a, a premillennial rapture pr perspective, and next week Randy says there is no rapture and teaches a postmillennial perspective, you can be pretty confused. Uh, and so it is important that there's, there's unity in, uh, in many of the core essential prophetic topics. Trust Randy to do something <laughs> like that. 60% uh, say that the premillennial uh, view best represents their views on the millennium described in Revelation 20. Uh, 57% say that their current views on the end times match most of their congregation's views. That's kind of interesting. Uh, basically, four in 10 are saying that I have views that my congregation doesn't share. Um, and that's kind of confusing, actually. <laughs> uh, 30% say preaching end time prophecies from the book of Revelation is somewhat important. 10% said preaching end-time prophecies from the book of Revelation is not important. 27% agree that interpreting the end times is a divisive issue within their congregation. 40% believe that the Christian church has fulfilled or replaced the nation of Israel in God's plan, which is often called replacement theology, and we'll, we'll deal with that in a little bit. Um, and... 56% expect Jesus to return in their lifetime. Brent, why do you think it is that so many pastors won't teach or don't feel that prophetic topics are important? Well, I think a lot of times pastors are feeling, A, it's maybe divisive, uh, not popular. They want to <laughs> grow their church, and so they want to stay as clear away from controversy as possible. I think that's a big uh, thing for a lot of people. And then, like you say, there's just, um, we talk about the church and Christians not being taught these things. I think a, a lot of pastors just are not really looking into these things themselves and really having a firm stance on what they themselves believe. And so they're holding a lot of things in ambiguity themselves and, uh, and so not passing on. But I think the, the driving forces, they just kind of feel like it's not... It's not really popular uh, or necessary. It's going to be controversial, and I might lose people. And so I think that's really what's driving a lot of pastors in that. Randy, what anything to add to that? Well, I think, sorry, I think a lot of the, um, not so much the older pastors, but the new guys coming up, they're not even being taught this in Bible college. It's not even something they want to even, so they're just basically ignoring the entire topic. And, I mean, it takes some time to dive in and, and really process what the scriptures say. And a lot of people just don't want to put the time in on something like that. Yeah. They just don't, they don't see why this, love is love is the latest thing that I hear a lot. So they won't focus on just love. And ironically, from that pastoral perspective, one of the things that Jesus commands, not just the pastoral uh, staff to do, but all of us to do, is to watch. 
And so they really, by not um, teaching on prophetic topics, uh, they're not watching. And scripture, or prophetic scripture makes up about 25% of the Bible. So one quarter of scripture is related to prophecy in some way. So they're avoiding a lot of topics uh, when they uh, don't address prophecy. Um, but we are told very clearly in scripture that we are to watch. We're not to be caught unaware. But what does it mean to watch? Part of that, again, is you need to know the scriptures. You need to go through it. You need to educate yourself. Uh, but then you also need to know what is going on. Um, Jesus in Luke uh, 19, when he came, this is one of the very few times it says that Jesus wept. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and he condemns the Pharisees because they did not understand that this was his appointed time. Very key words there, appointed time. And he expected them to know and understand who he was, and they didn't. And I think that's a real warning to our generation that we are told to watch, we are to expect, we are to be able to identify Jesus <laughs> and, and the signs of the times. And so that is, I think, uh, a warning that he gave the Pharisees that we can take to heart. It's interesting how he said there, like, in this your day. So he had this expectancy, the date, like you said, should have recognized the season they were in, uh, seeing things, what the Old Testament was saying, and that they should have been having an understanding that this was something significant for them based on what the word has already said. And so he's kind of holding them accountable to what they should have understood and been watching for. So yeah. very important. So that, that kind of brings us to the next kind of question is, okay, so what types of things are we to be watching? Uh, and the best way to um, describe prophecy is that Israel is God's timepiece. If you want to know what time it is on God's calendar, you need to look at Israel. And boy, are things happening in Israel right now. Um, so looking at a very important verse in regards to Israel, uh, Matthew 24. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So we're given a pretty big um, timepiece clue by Jesus here about when we can expect the final phase of history, the last days of time. And he says that fig tree, which is symbolic of Israel all throughout scripture, when you see that fig tree come back to life, that is the generation that will see all these other prophetic things happen. And people often have said, uh, you know, this generation, you know, we've seen earthquakes and wars and famine. This generation is no different than the generation before it. There's one defining feature of this generation that is different than all generations in the past 2,000 years, and that is the rebirth of Israel. And 1948, we have Israel essentially in a day become a nation. Uh, and we see this prophesied in Ezekiel 37. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have, been, have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. One of the questions that comes up out of this uh, verse in Matthew 24 about this generation is how long 
is a generation? Uh, it's a great question, and there are biblical scholars who have come up with different time frames um, for good reason. There are different examples in Scripture of a generation being 40 or 70 or 80 or even 120. And so, uh, Brent, what do you think? Do you think we can narrow it down to, a, to an actual day? Actually, you know, maybe this is a question no, for Randy based on, on yeah. last Randy's year, got dialed apparently. In, along with the prediction of when the rapture's going to happen. He's got this dialed in. <laughs> okay, so... Back in 2014, I gave prophecy update. Based on 80 years, I said, well, if we're still sitting here on March, whatever it was, 2021, then the 80-year thing didn't work out. Because you got to take, so what I was doing is 80 years from 1948, less seven years for the tribulation period, because it says all things must take place. And I came up with 2021, the rapture would need to occur. And then I said, obviously, we don't date set. I said, so if we're still sitting here, March 2021, then we got to rethink what a generation is. So as we were doing this and I was going through this, I went, hmm, I wonder what the lifespan in Israel is right now of the Israeli people. Well, and, and so I'm not date setting. Just when I tell you this, this was just for fun, okay? This is not date setting. Um, it's 83 years. When you add 83 to all these numbers, Guess which year comes up? 2024. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not date setting. We're not saying. I am not, not date setting. I've already been not wrong because I didn't date set back then either. That's right. You did not. You did. Um, That's true. So the generation thing, who knows? We, yeah, it could we be just, 120. We just don't know. And it could be higher. We just don't know. Um, but what we do see is when Jesus said that is that generation at the time when that fig tree comes back to life. The rebirth of Israel, uh, we believe, is that uh, we're living in those days is, is kind of what it comes down to for us. And I think we have to live that much more expecting. We're living in a generation that has the privilege of seeing Israel um, becoming a nation again and to see what has happened now in that nation since it's become an independent state once again is just miraculous. We see God at work and we're living in, in exciting days. That's the key for us here. Yeah, and I, th I think the key there is to recognize that the rebirth of Israel makes our generation unique to any generation before it. Uh, and we, as they've already said, we can't nail down a specific generational time, but we certainly do get that general season, that the generation that was living to see Israel reborn, will that generation die out before the Lord returns? I would suggest probably not. But as far as narrowing it down beyond that, uh, a little too speculative, I think. So, Let's look at the land here and what's been going on there, just to give you a bit of a visual. When you see this idea of something that's dead coming back to life, um, Mark Twain, uh, in 1897, I believe, 1857, somewhere around there, um, his journal records his visit to Israel. And he describes the land as a barren wasteland, um, as a pile of dirt. Uh, and the Jerusalem being so small that basically they could circle it. And, and just his description of, of Israel is that first kind of picture of Tel Aviv, where basically people just on the sand dunes, there's nothing there. Look at Tel Aviv now. It's like any modern city you would see. Uh, and the land itself, uh, they have developed some amazing um, agricultural uh, developments. They invented the drip irrigation system. Uh, which has made the desert bloom. 
Um, and that's why in Israel you'll see it bloom, and elsewhere all the surrounding areas, not so much. It's still very desert looking. So they have drip irrigation. Um, one interesting thing is um, they have the most productive cows in the world. And, you know, how do you, how do you gauge that? Uh, well, they did some experiment and they um, gauged how much milk per cow is produced. And more milk is produced per cow in Israel than anywhere else in the world. Um, and they even have a new technology that is able to absorb the moisture from the air and produce water out of air. That sounds pretty crazy. Yeah. You're going to want to look this up if you don't believe me and look up Israeli technology that is taking water from the air. And they're already talking about how they want to bring this to Africa to help uh, give water to people in Africa where they need it so much and they're using air. Uh, and there's some fascinating videos. Uh, and it just shows you the, um, the blessing that they have in uh, reestablishing themselves in the land. It is blossoming in ways that... Uh, they haven't seen in 2,000 years. Yeah, being one of the leading exporters of fruit and, and things around Europe and uh, around the area, just to see in just a short time how that land has just transformed. And it's exactly what God said would happen in his word. It's pretty exciting. So even though Israel was reestablished in 1948 and it's been blossoming, it wasn't until 1967 that another important piece of the puzzle fell into place. Uh, they did not have um, control of Jerusalem in 1948. It wasn't until the Six-Day War in 1967 uh, that they were able to capture Jerusalem. Uh, and with that capture, uh, we're seeing other prophetic elements come into play that are extremely important. Uh, so uh, once again, this idea of you know, the fig tree, that final generation, do we count from 1948? Or do we possibly count from 1967? And so again, there's, there, there's that flexibility I think we need to have in understanding a generation. But once again, prophetically speaking, we're told the establishment of Jerusalem is one of the most important um, Israel-centered prophecies we need to be watching. Uh, and we're warned in Zechariah where uh, the prophet says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, unto all the people round about. And some verses say in all, the, all, basically all the nations. And if you look at the news today, it's not just Israel, it's not just Jerusalem, it's the Temple Mount area that is kind of the epicenter of the world and what's going on and where the world is focusing. Um, and we're warned in scripture, yeah, Jerusalem is going to be a burdensome stone for all nations until the end. And we're seeing that now. Uh, Jerusalem, of course, is where Israel has its um, capital, but only a few countries in the world actually recognize that. And with their presence comes uh, what's happening right now in Jerusalem with, oh, can read it? Yeah, we can read it. Um, with the United Nations, um, this is some pretty um, startling facts, but falls in line with the whole world turning against Jerusalem. Uh, these are UN resolutions since 2006, uh, and there have been a total of 761, but 297 have been against Israel, more than any other, I think more, almost more, more than all the other countries combined. Yeah. And when you look at the abuses going on around the world in Iran, North Korea, uh, many African countries, and yet Israel is 40% 
of the resolutions. Uh, so you can see that the world is clearly against Israel. And even as recently as a week or two ago, we're seeing UN resolutions against Israel. As of uh, this morning's news headlines, they're already talking about additional resolutions. And so this scripture, this prophetic passage, the world is going to be against Jerusalem. We're seeing it this morning. <laughs> Just increasing, increasing all the more with what's been going on for sure. From a Canadian perspective, one of the nice things for much of Canada's history is it has been very supportive of Israel. And we need to remember God's you know, promise that I will bless those who bless you. And I think there is a blessing that comes in a national sense when a country stands behind Israel, not only on a, on a personal level, but on a national perspective. And Canada and the United States have uh, really had Israel's back over the last 40, 50 years until recently. Um, and this, this next headline, I thought, kind of sums up where Canada's perspective is right now on Israel. Um, Canada voted against Israel in some re recent resolutions, and Hamas thanked Canada for that. And when you have a terrorist organization thanking your government for their policies, you might want to pause and just reevaluate uh, what kind of policies you're implementing. So on a national level, unfortunately, we see Canada uh, not really standing behind Israel the way they used to. And that's a shift that has happened in that now Canada is, like the rest of the world, joining in, in, in opposing Israeli policy. Now, that doesn't mean we agree with everything Israel does. That's an important distinction. It, there's a difference between supporting and loving that country and the Jewish people, and it doesn't mean we endorse or support every single thing they do. So that's an important distinction, I think, that does need to be made as well. Yeah. Well, let's look at, let's, let's, we got to wrap things up here, but let's cover just a, f a few more slides here because we got a lot to uncover here, but let's look at some dangers of replacement theology here. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, yeah, take us through this here. So on a national level, we have policies being implemented, but what about what's happening in the church? Uh, and we see uh, a particular theological perspective influencing Christians and their congregations as to how they view Israel and how, how they view the world. Um, this thing called replacement theology is that essentially, well, let's go through this. Yeah. Uh, some of their core beliefs in replacement theology are that Jews are no longer God's chosen people. Um, God does not have a specific future plan for the nation of Israel. The church has replaced Israel uh, and promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church. And I would sum this up in a rather strong way. Well, that means God is a liar. And if God's a liar, we can't trust him. And so replacement theology, I think, is driving um, some of the perspectives that Christians have in what's going on in a dangerous way. Yeah, that slide got cut off there. Replacement theology drives anti-Semitism, I think we had in there. So Yeah, yeah. It, it's... And that's something we're seeing increasingly growing now. And... And growing with a lot of ignorance, sadly, because what we're seeing now is uh, our young people, in fact, we'll, we'll bring this, this next slide here. Uh, let's take it down to this one here, but um, we got to, yeah, we got to finish up here. Okay. But what's driving a lot of this too is just like, you know, the indoctrination that we see of, of young people uh, following along with kind of the rhetoric they're hearing, uh, you know, about the uh, liberation of Palestinians, the colonialism of, of Israel, and we see all these things that are being taught, and yet people are just not understanding the history. Um, take us through this a little bit here. 
So uh, if you have uh, older people, I consider myself an older person, um, I, I have nothing to do with TikTok. But if you have children, if you know of younger people, chances are they are on TikTok. And it's important to know what information they are receiving. Uh, and I find like a lot of social media, it's very addictive. And so while your young people may be receiving an hour or two, maybe three, four, five, six hours of biblical worldview or, or teaching a week, I can guarantee they're probably getting double or triple that on TikTok. And uh, TikTok is just, you know, short, witty clips, but enough to give you just enough information on what's going on from a biased perspective. And it's done uh, in a very sharp way that um, has an impact on young people. They, the attention span is not so long. So if you can get them a one or two minute clip that just says, oh, Israel's bad, here's why. One minute, no background about Israel, the Jewish people, what's going on, no understanding of history. And you can see from this slide, and this was in, this was in the first uh, month of the conflict, how many people were posting clips related to pro-Palestinian um, information versus how many people were saying, I stand with Israel during this time? Pretty lopsided, and I, I'm pretty sure those numbers have gone up much, much higher uh, now, but 210,000 to 17,000. And so I would say, especially to parents, do you know what your youth believe about what's going on. Um, I was, uh, my own daughter listens to TikTok and I've seen her come up with some perspectives, not just on the Israel conflict, but um, on climate or different social issues. And my wife and I are like, where did you get this information from? And the information that she spurts off is essentially sound clips from TikTok, that's where she gets her information from uh, because that's where they get their news from. Young people don't watch the news. They go to TikTok for their news. Uh, and that explains the stats. 51% of Americans, 18 to 24, believe that Hamas was justified in its terrorist attacks. Uh, and that's pretty shocking. Half of our young people are essentially being brainwashed. And so we're seeing a lot of our social media that's really driving a lot of these things here, as you can see here. Uh, TikTok bans ads to the release of Jewish hostages while allowing Palestinian relief aid ads. And uh, so, yeah, we're seeing, you know, social media having huge influence, but really, you know, catering to a narrative. Oh, yeah. And uh, we mentioned earlier the, the biases that are in the media with what you do or don't report. Uh, but TikTok insiders have posted um, some inside information about how the moderators, the people who are supposed to control the content, celebrated the Hamas yeah. attacks. Celebrated. Yeah. And these are the people controlling what can and can't be on TikTok. So if there was ever a bias, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. uh, and like Brent said, they've actually banned um, ads that promote um, the return of the hostages yeah. because it's too political. They don't want to deal with it. Right. Uh, whereas you know, funding for supporting Gaza, they've, they've spent millions and millions of dollars. They've allowed advertising. Yeah. And this next one here, uh, not too long ago, there was the uh, release of the alleged letter from Osama bin Laden to America that a lot of young people were getting a hold of and that was just completely beginning to reshape and causing a rethink their perspective of you know, the country they live on based on what Osama bin Laden had to say. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing that um, one in five now has a positive view of the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. One in five. Uh, that's, uh, it's mind-blowing. And yet, how does that happen? Lack of education, lack of teaching combined with sound clips and sound bites to encourage them to uh, you know, have this uh, anti-US, anti-Western ideals. Uh, and so Osama bin Laden went viral. And how do you explain that? That's a, a deep question to ask. And uh, you can see how that's come from uh, TikTok indoctrination. So. Yeah. And so again, just the ignorance, because if uh, many of these young people who are out there now rallying for you know, the liberation of Palestine, um, who are taking a very positive view even towards Hamas, if some of these young people really understood what Islam stood for and what life would be like in these, in these places, uh, you wouldn't see a lot of these people standing up, rallying. This next is very interesting, this next video or picture here, where you see a lot of queers for, for Palestine rallying, and yet if they understood, it'd be like cows rallying for McDonald's, you know? <laughs> Let's keep McDonald's alive, right? Um, and that's the, the crazy thing that we're seeing with just the shift of, you know, influence from social media to where our young people today are following blindly along um, with a lot of these things. Yeah, how bad is the indoctrination when you are supporting for the creation of a state that if you went to would kill you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't, it doesn't get any worse than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to talk about this side right here. Uh, and one of the great stories going on right now through a lot of what we see happening uh, in our day is just the revival taking place. It's probably one of the most underreported stories going on that you're probably not hearing about right now. Uh, in the first service, we talked about the importance that Jesus uh, said, you need to be watching the fig tree come back to life. And he said, you need to be watching. Well, what are we to be watching? And one of the primary signs is the fig tree coming back to life. And all throughout scripture, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel. And so he warns us, when you see Israel come back to life, then that is the generation that will see all these things come to pass. Uh, we saw that happen in 1948. And since then, we've seen a lot of important things happen as well. We've seen the recapture of Jerusalem and the Six-Day War. But we're seeing big gaps of time before a lot of prophetic things would happen. Right now, we are th seeing things rapidly escalate uh, in terms of what's happening in Israel because Jesus says you need to be watch, watching. What are we to be watching? We're to be watching Israel. Well, Israel is in the news pretty much 24-7 now. Uh, but there are some things happening that, in general, most people are not aware of. And to me, this is probably the number one prophetic story of the year. And it, yes, the Hamas attack is what instigated this. But what's happening now is information that a lot of people are not aware of. I'm blessed to be uh, in contact with a lot of people in Israel, a lot of different ministries. Uh, and essentially, the Hamas attack on October 7th was their 9-11. And as a result, just like in the United States and around the world, you had people coming together, getting rid of their differences and agreeing to work together. You saw the churches full. Uh, and people were kind of waking up to the reality of, I need to think about my life and what's going on in the world. And from a Jewish perspective, you're seeing that happen again across the Jewish world. Um, for the most part, Israel has been a secular nation. Now, we, when we refer to the Jews, you'd be surprised to find that I think it's 50 to 60% of Jews are secular. In other words, they're Jews by birth, but not necessarily by faith. 
uh, and you're about to see some uh, big changes uh, in that perspective after Oct October 7th when Hamas attacked. Uh, so we have this attack on October, uh, October 7th, and let's go to the next slide. And this was one of the most, um, not shocking, but startling stories I have seen uh, come out of Israel this year. Uh, and this is from, uh, I'm going to read it for you, and you can follow along. Uh, Likud member uh, Galit, uh, I'm not, I can't even pronounce the name, but she's a member of the, of the, the set there, their Israeli parliament, and she addressed the parliament on Wednesday, and despite identifying as a non-religious Jew, like so many do, um, her address praised the messianic manifestations appearing to the IDF in Gaza. She described a gathering of hundreds of soldiers singing, I can't even pronounce that song, but in English it's I Believe, uh, before going into combat in Gaza. The song's words are, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though we tarry, I will wait daily for his coming. Yesterday I saw one of the most touching films I have seen that come out of this war until now. Hundreds of soldiers in one hall singing that they believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. It is a little strange because as emotional as this is, Every newspaper you open, every television show you watch, every article in Haaretz, define this belief in Messiah, this burning and eternal belief of the nation of Israel, this messianic belief, as the greatest existential danger to our country right now. It doesn't matter that this is how we define our soldiers indirectly. Those who do the Kohanic blessing in Gaza, those who sing in honor of the Messiah in Gaza, those who put on the telephone because they are messianic, it doesn't matter that this is strange for that the eternal nation, that the one thing that kept us was our belief that the Messiah would one day come. Suddenly, this belief is considered a curse or an existential threat to the country. Next slide. I want to put these strange things to the side in order to make a confession. I used to have different messiahs. I used to believe in a messiah called the Green Line. I, want, uh, I went to a stationery store and I brought a, a green felt-tip marker. I scribbled some lines on a map and that was my messiah. After that, my messiah was the Oslo Accords. Mm. These messiahs were false messiahs. Not only were they false, but they were dangerous. For one moment, I went to defend the Messiah of the Jewish nation, the concept of the Messiah. I wonder what went wrong with us as a nation. There's this ascendant idea, this progression towards the eternal that brings us the Jewish Messiah. Why is this so ridiculous and ridiculed as being dangerous? My Messiah commands me to dream of peace, she continued. My Messiah commands me to wish for brotherhood between nations. My Messiah is eternal. I want to use this opportunity to stand in the Knesset of Israel and to say with great pride, member of the Knesset, believe with me, I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even if he delays, I will wait for him every day to arrive, and he will come quickly, amen. And at least one other MK in attendance echoed her amen. Awesome. Yeah. That is something that you would never see in Israel. As I said, most of the Jews are secular in nature, and before the Hamas attack, Israel was literally tearing itself apart. Yeah. They were on the verge of civil war. You had mass protests in the street, and uh, now you have, in many ways, a unified nation. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox, who um, are on the more extreme of their society, refuse for the past 40, 50 years to serve in the military. They want, they're very distinct, and now you have them instead of trying to be recruited into the military, which is one of the reasons they were also in controversy is they didn't want to be drafted, they're now volunteering. 
to serve in the military. Uh, you have various branches of, is, of um, Judaism, you have reform and orthodox. They're all now coming together. Their synagogues are full, and they've interviewed rabbis. 98% say their synagogues are overflowing with Jews who are looking to reconnect with their faith. This is a massive shift, worldview shift, in the mindset of the Jewish people. And for myself, who has studied prophecy for years, this is a tremendous development that you're probably not aware of or not hearing about in the news. And so it is very prophetically significant. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great thing to note on, just the fact that we oftentimes overlook what 2023 was looking like for Israel before October 7th. And yeah, they were on the verge of, of civil war. There was just a lot of unrest uh, happening in Israel. Now to see something that, again, we don't see picked up in the news too often, but to see what's really happening now in the, in the aftermath. I mean, war is tragic. All that's going on over there is, is such a tragedy. But uh, to see what is happening now among Israel and the Jews here and coming together with a greater unity through all this. And like we see here, some of the, you know, uptick in some of these things. Here. So, so some of the, the evidences of this revival are the fact that they have a Teflon shortage. And the Teflon are a set of uh, two black leather boxes with straps that are worn by Jewish men during morning prayers. Uh, and one box is worn on the head and the other on the arm. Some of you may have seen images on TV or in movies where they, they have this attached. Well, that kind of explains what it is, but there's a shortage because so many are reconnecting with their faith. This is how they're identifying with their beliefs and there's a shortage. <laughs> you hear Jesus talking about phylacteries in the Bible. Uh, the, the Pharisees would enlarge in their phylacteries to really have this big presence of, look at how holy and spiritual we're being. That's what we're talking about here. They put these on the foreheads on uh, their wrists and have scriptures inside, so. Uh, another thing they're experiencing a shortage of is uh, the mezuzah, and again, uh, my own exposure to this was on TV when you'd see them kind of tap this thing on the door before they go in through their, into their house. Uh, there is also a shortage of mezuzahs. Uh, and this is a piece of parchment inscribed with specific Hebrew verses from the Torah, uh, which they affix to their doorposts, uh, and some people will touch it or kiss it as they walk in the door. Uh, and there's also a shortage of those already. And so, scripturally speaking, we were told this would, in a sense, happen. Uh, we have a return in 1948, 1967, but since that time, we have seen a massive amount of Jewish immigration back to Israel. In 2023, we see 95 different countries are where Jews are returning from back to Israel. And this is before the Hamas attack. Uh, and uh, the Jewish population uh, is about 15.7 worldwide in 2023. What's interesting is 7.2 million reside in Israel. We are about to see, and if you want to throw that next slide, a tipping point, and this is a significant tipping point. Up until this year, more Jews have lived outside of Israel than inside of Israel, and that's all about to change. Uh, there is talk of up to a million Jews now moving, mainly from Western countries, whereas in the past it was mainly from the Middle East and from Africa, from Asia. Now we're seeing Western Jews about to go back to Israel because of the anti-Semitism that's happening and what's going on. And that's, and that's remarkable because typically when you see a country at war, it's like people are fleeing to get out of there. And yet in Israel, we see people seeking to flee to get back into their country. And, and yeah, they're being driven out, no doubt, by the, again, the increase of anti-Semitism in various countries. But again, there's a love 
for Israel. And I think a real uh, supernatural love that God is putting in the, in the hearts of people to call them back to their homeland. And Ezekiel 37 gives us that valley of the dry bones just from that previous slide when you saw this valley of dry bones coming back to life. We're told in the book of Ezekiel that they will... Israel itself will blossom, but the people itself will come back to life and they will inhabit Israel. And so we're seeing prophecy fulfilled and even accelerated right now in our day and age. So, so what we have happening right now worldwide is an increase of anti-Semitism. Uh, and uh, sadly, it's happening really amongst the young. Uh, and so this poll, uh, this was just this month in December, uh, so we're seeing 67%, uh, this is a, a poll of what young people perceive of the Jewish people, 67% view Jews as a class, as oppressors, and should be treated as oppressors. 67%. That's a pretty high number. 60% uh, believe the Hamas attack can be justified by the grievances of the Palestinians. 60% of young people understand why Hamas did what they do. 53% believe that people should feel free to call for the genocide of Jews. And yes, I understand there are some free speech issues that go along with that, but the idea that more than half people are like, yeah, you wanna call for the death of an entire race of people? That's okay? That's pretty scary. 51%, this is also very scary, Israel should be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Almost, well, more than half believe that it should be given to the Palestinians. And from a Christian perspective, uh, if you look at what's happening in Israel right now, Israel is the only nation in the Middle East where you have Christianity growing. You have a 1.3 percentage increase in the amount of Christians in Israel uh, in 2023. Uh, in total, there's about 188,000 Christians in Israel right now. Um, as they've just celebrated Christmas, you saw probably what happened with Bethlehem. They canceled Christmas. Uh, in 1950, Bethlehem was about 80 to 90% Christian. It's now about 10% Christian. And we're calling for a nation that, you know, to be created that will persecute not just Jews, but also Christians. And you see the Christians fleeing from Gaza, uh, not because of Israel. They're fleeing from Gaza because of the persecution of the Hamas authority who exists there. So, yet... <laughs> 76% of young people believe that Hamas is an organization that can be negotiated with. Wow. Uh, and uh, that's very sad. So, and taking into account again, just the ages here. And so what we're seeing, we talked about this in the first service, how uh, ignorance is driving so much of these kinds of views. And there's so many of our young people that are just being swept up in the narrative, the things that they're being taught in, in universities, the things that they're seeing on social media. We talked a lot about that, just the... the uh, influence of social media upon our young people and how they're being carried along with this narrative about Israel bad, uh, Palestine good, Hamas is again not really the the problem or the aggressor, it's Israel and they're being swept along with this and they're they're speaking out things without really having an understanding of the history and really what's going on there in the Middle East and so we see again just what's uh, driving a lot of this anti-Semitism is its ignorance. Yeah, as Brent was saying, just some of the information we shared in the first service, so it would include, 
encourage you to watch the YouTube clip they're going to post of the first service. Uh, a lot of young people uh, love their social media, but a lot of young people have moved on from Facebook. That's kind of an older person's thing now. And TikTok is the new younger person social media platform. Uh, and they're usually, you know, just quick bites of information to give you just enough information to hate Israel, but not understand anything more about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the slides we showed was the percentage of um, I Stand With Palestine TikTok videos was about 210,000. I Stand With Israel was 17,000. And so you have this incredible... Uh, if you're on TikTok, you're going to be hit with about 95% anti-Israel information. So parents, uh, be aware of what your children are learning on TikTok. Um, there was a, a lady I talked to a week or two ago, and she was mentioning that she was um, asking her daughter if she wanted to go to McDonald's. And her daughter said, uh, no, we can't go to McDonald's. They support Israel. And she's like, where did you get this information from? And so be aware that what you're seeing with these polls is really due to ignorance. They just don't know and understand. So parents, it's your role uh, to find out what your kids believe and then to encourage them to find good sources of information to educate them yes. because they're not going to get it in the school system yes. and they're not going to get it on social media. And they will get it here on Sunday, but an hour a week is not going to cut it when they're spending 20, 30 hours a week on TikTok. So... Got to be aware of the battle yeah. going on for the mind. Exactly. Randy, share with us some of the comments you've been getting on your TikTok account. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got shut down. Okay, so I've, shut never, down. Okay. I've never been on right. TikTok. And um, Facebook being old, I don't use that one either. So, no, I, I, I've never even actually been on TikTok. Anybody else? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> The, the slide up there kind of shows us a little bit about some of that ignorance. Um, and it's not just young people, you know, it's people in, getting into their, in their 20s and 30s as well. Uh, you'll hear this slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And yet when the young people are asked, what river, what sea are we talking about? They don't know. And they don't understand, they're actually calling for the annihilation of Israel. And they don't realize that. They're just kind of getting with, caught up with the latest slogans. Yeah. Have you seen any, any clips online about people being asked these questions? What river, what sea? I mean, you're just getting crazy. Uh, Mississippi, I think. <laughs> Must be the Nile. I don't know. Just have no idea, you know. And the other is evidence of that shown. They also asked, uh, and this was a specific poll done by 250 undergraduates. So these are our next generation. These are young people being educated. And when asked about uh, their pro-Palestinian views, 75% could not even find Gaza on a map. So uh, like I said, a lot of this anti-Semitism is being driven by a lack of knowledge. 80% had no knowledge of how Israel was created in 48 or 1967, which is really one of the core issues going on with the Hamas conflict. Uh, when Hamas attacked Israel, they said as their justification, their reason, we are defending Al-Aska Mosque. This is the reason we are attacking, because of the violations at the mosque. And you ask most people, what is the Al-Aska Mosque? What is the Temple Mount? They have no idea. And so it's important to uh, be educated and informed. Yeah. So in addition to all the stuff going on with education and social media, we have demographic changes. 
we have a huge shift and change, not only here in Canada and also in the US, but of course also in Europe. Uh, we have uh, large immigration numbers from countries that are historically anti-Israel. And while not all Muslims think the same, polls consecutively show that uh, they resist Western integration, Western mindset, religion, ideals, and they keep many anti-Semitic views. One thing I want to say just as we're looking at demographics, um, there's a danger in looking at the reality of demographics and somehow attributing that to, oh, this means you're anti-immigrant or you're anti-multicultural. And um, as an immigrant to the US, I understand that there are differences that you bring. I've, I've invaded the US with my Canadian views. Uh, but you know what the reality is? I bring a lot of what I've been brought up as a Canadian into the US. And people who are brought up in historically anti-Israel countries bring with them a certain mindset and a certain view. And that doesn't mean you're anti-Muslim or that you should hate Muslims. But you shouldn't be ignorant to the fact that Muslims are raised with a worldview just like Christians are. And historically speaking, those views are very anti-Jewish and anti-Israel. And that's the reality that we're seeing in Poles and in Europe. Yeah, that's telling here. And as evidence of that, when they've polled um, uh, Muslims in the UK, what do you believe about certain anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories? 44% believed them. They were like, yeah, that's true. That's what's happening. Uh, some of the anti-Semitic anti conspiracy theories floating around right now is that it wasn't Hamas that attacked the settlements. It was Israel. And that's been floating around. Or that in the attack, no women or children were harmed, despite the fact we have eyewitness testimony and we have video uh, and yet they are so um, convinced that it can't possibly be true, and we see these views coming from this, and 44% uh, adopted those views, and I'm sure it's just as strong now. Yeah. So something very interesting here is to see as we're looking at the reshaping of Europe, you know, top baby names of 2023, and there at the top of the list for boys is the name Muhammad. Yes. So that's pretty uh, telling right there, So if too. you're looking for baby names, there's a, a great list there. Uh, but the reality of the shift, and this is from the UK, uh, that uh, Muhammad was the number one name, and yes, some of that is, is by tradition, but a lot of it is also they want to honor their faith, and so they name usually their firstborn son Muhammad, and that shows the influence uh, of that worldview. Yeah. Another thing just to note on the, uh, the baby names, if you look at the demographic shift, especially in Europe, uh, you have uh, a majority of the students going into the schools are all Islamic, it's almost a majority, 50%. What that means is that in 20 to 30 years, as the older generation passes and the younger generation comes up, you are going to have a very large Muslim population uh, as a result. Absolutely, yeah. So. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, as a result of all this, how is all this relevant to the Jews going back to Israel? For the most part, Jews have felt very safe in Western nations for the past 40, 50 years. That has all now changed. Uh, and this is pretty shocking that almost half of British Jews are considering leaving the UK. That's a, a pretty large number that are looking to return to Israel. Yeah. Uh, and so that's prophetic in nature. Yeah. Just another uh, 
background piece as to why they are getting ready to leave. Uh, if you are Jewish and you see one million people marching in London demanding your death or doing various other slogans, they no longer feel safe. And they'd rather go to a war zone with people that share the same values and they know they'll feel safe uh, than they do in the UK. Uh, and that's the same thing on, especially campuses, uh, school campuses in both Canada and the US. Yep. So same kind of thing. And it's not, this is not the first time in history this has happened. Um, after the creation of Israel in 48, you still had a Jewish population that was spread out throughout uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, but over time, that was a big, there was a big shift. And over the next 20 years, almost every single Jew who lived in those countries has now left. This uh, map you're seeing up there right now is from 2017. Uh, and as you can see, there was already a giant reduction uh, in the amount of Jews living in these countries. Why? They knew that their lives were on the, on the line. It started off in some small forms of persecution, but it eventually got to the point where they felt their lives were in danger. And we're seeing history repeat itself, but instead of North Africa and the Middle East, because there are no Jews left in those countries, we're now seeing the rest of the Jewish population around the world looking to immigrate as well. That's right. And just along the same line of the demographic realities, um, this quote by Muammar Gaddafi, who is more from the 80s and 90s, he was uh, eventually overthrown, but it's interesting that he would make this statement. We have 50 million Muslims in Europe. There are signs that Allah will grant Islam victory in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We will turn into a Muslim continent within a few decades. Uh, and he was perhaps not that far off uh, we have a 44% increase in Muslims in the last 10 years living in the UK. 1.5 million uh, Muslims now live in London. The mayor of London is Muslim. Uh, and it's not just the UK, it's all throughout Europe. In France, we have more practicing Muslims than Catholics. Not by population, but by practicing. In other words, people who are serious about their faith. Um, and uh, again, a demographic shift. 65% of practicing Catholics are over 50. 73% of Muslims in France are under the age of 50. So within 20 to 30 years, you're going to see these demographic shifts increase. So what we're seeing now is only gonna get worse. And unfortunately, as much as there is this push for a Palestinian state, what would a Palestinian state look like? Uh, whereas Israel has guaranteed the religious freedom uh, of Muslims in Israel, uh, many, many Arabs who live in Israel have full religious rights, uh, access to the Temple Mount. Uh, if the Palestinians are giving a state, uh, they've made pretty clear not a single Jew will be allowed in, even in the country. And yet this is what we want to supposedly support. Uh, and if you were to sell land to Jews, it is on their books as a punishable crime by death. So they have some very strict, um, they haven't actually put anyone to death. They have uh, about three years ago sentenced one man who sold land to the Jews to a lifetime of hard labor. And so that's the punishment for selling land to the Jews. And at the bottom, you see this uh, startling percentage. 82% of Palestinians said the massacre on October 7th was appropriate. And so you could see why the Jewish people are very reluctant to give the Palestinians a state, knowing that they will continue to, to seek out their annihilation. Yeah. 
So. So as we look at Israel being this prophetic timepiece of God, you just kind of watch what's going on in the news with Israel, and you see them more and more being squeezed out in different uh, lands, countries where they've felt safe for many years and now feeling just threatened, worried just to even go out on the streets now. And so that's all, though, leading to a returning to the land. And as we see more and more people returning to the land, there's just a, a greater kind of... I think, uh, excitement for, you know, and a hope to the Lord, what the Lord's going to do. One of the uh, exciting things uh, that we get to witness and see right now is the movement towards the, the rebuilding of Israel's third temple, which we know the Bible prophesies about is going to be a reality during the tribulation and even into uh, the millennium. Now, in the tribulation, it's going to be where the Antichrist is going to come into and seek to be worshipped as God when Israel, midway point of tribulation, is going to recognize that this is not their Messiah, that he is uh, an enemy. He's going to pursue Israel with, again, a, a great fervent uh, anti-Semitic hate towards them. Jesus tells them where to flee, where Israel is going to be safe. So that's all going to unfold in tribulation. But what we recognize is that there's going to be a temple built. And to see the movement happening right now towards uh, that third temple being built, again, causes us to realize uh, God's word come into fruition. And that the times that we're living in are very exciting times. Here's some things that are unfolding uh, right now regarding the building of the, the next temple. So what we're kind of doing here is we're looking at dominoes falling in place because uh, without this return to Israel, without this messianic expectation, you would not have a desire for a temple. And for the most part, expectations for a temple in Israel for the last 20, 30 years have been considered fringe. It was the fringe of society that wanted a temple. But now with this religious revival and messianic expectations, with this return of the people to the land, you now have, growing from that, a desire to see a rebuilt temple, which, as I said, on the, in the past has only been fringe. And now there are some significant developments happening to prepare for that. Uh, one of the main ones, it's kind of a new development in 2023, is the red heifer. And so a red heifer would, is a completely reddish cow that cannot have um, uh, a single blemish on it. There's certain specific requirements for it to meet the qualifications to be a pure red heifer, very stringent. There have been, I think before this year, only maybe two or three in the past 10 to 15 years that qualify and then they aged out. They were no longer uh, available. So even if they wanted to rebuild the temple, Ceremonially speaking, they could not build one because the ashes of a red heifer, they would sacrifice the red heifer, use the ashes to cleanse the priest, the instruments, the temple itself. And so that was a pretty big stumbling block if you don't have a red heifer. That's all changed in 2023. Fascinating story. Um, uh, Christian from Texas, uh, where they have lots of ranches, knew about this uh, prophetic significance of needing a red heifer. Israel does not have any red heifers. So he went on a quest to find red heifers and he networked throughout the United States and Australia and Canada to find red heifers on their farms. And they came up with five. So there are now five red heifers that meet the qualification for the temple. 
Uh, and we have a little clip to show you a little bit more about what's happening with the red heifers. Let's do that. Nine Jewish priests plot a land on the Mount of Olives and five red heifers. All these elements are in place for what some Jews and Gentiles believe is the key to building the third Jewish temple. Some also believe it indicates the coming of the Messiah. Chris Mitchell reports from Jerusalem. The five red heifers are now in a secure, undisclosed location in Israel. Plans include moving them sometime soon to a visitor's center in Shiloh, where the tabernacle of the Lord once stood for nearly 400 years. The Book of Numbers explains that ashes of the red heifer are used to purify priests for their service in the temple. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. Its offal shall be burned, for the water of purification it is for purifying from sin. These red heifers are now between one and a half to two years old. To replicate the ceremony mentioned in the Bible, they need to be at least three years old. And within that time span, they cannot have a blemish or anything that would disqualify them for the ceremony, even one white or black hair. According to those working on the project, the ceremony of the red heifer needs to be performed on the Mount of Olives and in a place that would have looked directly into where the temple stood. The land I'm standing on, bought 12 years ago, fits both of those standards. It had to be exactly at the front of place that the priest that made this ceremony can see the holy of the holy place. Rabbi Yitzhak Mamo heads Yuvne so. Jerusalem, dedicated to the goal of rebuilding the third temple. He owns the land here on the Mount of Olives. And we hope that in a year and a half from today, we can make here in this area the ceremony of the red heifer that actually will be the first step to the temple. Mamo says the ceremony needs priests who have not been defiled by touching anything dead. The Temple Institute actually has uh, nine pure priests. They didn't born in a hospital, okay, they born at home. Mm -hmm. Because they are priests, so anyway, they don't go to any cemetery and they are pure mm -hmm. and they are waiting. So we have the priest, we have the red heifer, we have the land, and we have everything ready. We just need to wait another one and a half year. Byron Stinson of B'nai Israel, a group dedicated to building up biblical Israel, works with Rabbi Mamo and helped find the red heifers in the U.S. He says these would be the first in 2,000 years, and that the process toward a third Jewish temple began when the Jewish people started their return to the promised land from the four corners of the world, culminating with Israel becoming a nation. And then in 1948, one day they were reborn as a nation and nobody said that could happen. And then you move forward and Israel continues to be this strong nation and all of these prophecies start fulfilling. There, there's so many now, but it's just incredible, the evidence of, of what God is doing with uh, Jerusalem as the center of that. And the temple is the center of Jerusalem. And so how can it happen and how will it happen? I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Stinson believes the temple is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. In the Bible, it says when Solomon built the first temple, he said, this is a 
house of worship for all nations. That's what the temple is. And I think a lot of people think it's just the Jewish temple, but that's not true. It's for all the nations of the earth. Author Joe Rosenberg wrote about the third temple in his novel, The Copper Scroll, and tells CBN News Jews have different views on the subject. Jews are divided, actually, between does the Messiah himself have to come and build the temple, or do you build a temple and the Messiah, Messiah comes? So among those Jews, Israelis who care, that's actually, they're, they're divided in two different camps. I think most Israelis don't think about it, don't care, and actually would get a little worried of talk of a third temple because we already have enough trouble. Rosenberg also sees various points of view throughout the Christian community. Those who think about it and those who don't. Most Christians, I think, don't think about the third temple, uh, but those who do uh, believe that it will be built before Jesus returns for the second coming, not necessarily before the rapture, but definitely before the second uh, coming, and, uh, and that the Antichrist will take over that third temple during the tribulation and try to rule the world from there. Could it happen in our lifetime? That, to me, is intriguing. I think we don't know, uh, but, there, but, the, but there are some Jews who are really making, as you're, as you're reporting on, preparations to get ready for that moment, and that's something to watch closely. Stinson says they plan to invite everyone to the red heifer ceremony that may take place in Passover 2024. Everything is in place now with the red heifers. As long as they stay pure, one of them stays pure, then we have everything in place, including the priests. Mamo says, according to the Jewish sage Maimonides, there were nine red heifers from Moses to the second temple. It's not his way to write, but suddenly he said the tent will make the Messiah. We know that the Messiah will make the tent. Maybe we have the privilege to be one of these people that uh, help the Messiah to do it. So we're waiting. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. So pretty fascinating stuff right there. So these heifers have been sent out to Israel. They're there. Yeah, the Temple Institute right in Jerusalem. How many people have been to the Temple Institute before? I had the privilege of going there a few times. And it's exciting to see in the Temple Institute, they have all the different uh, articles ready to go. Like they said, they got priests that are there right now, you know, ready to go. They they believe they have the heifers. They have everything they, they feel they need. They've got articles of uh, clothing for the priests that they have. Um, on display that you can see the temple <clears throat> instruments. They're training the temple priests here. And so we see all these things already in position, ready to go. Uh, when you go to Jerusalem, I've had the opportunity to go there, and I've shared this many times, that um, when I talk to various people there, I will ask them, you know, how do you know who the Messiah is going to be? What What is going to be the indication that this person that comes is the Messiah waiting for? And they often will say, he's going to lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. It's what they're waiting for. They cannot have their sacrifice. They cannot have their, their ceremonial uh, practices without their temple. They've been without the temple since the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. And so they're longing for this place of worship again. They believe the Messiah is going to come and lead them in the rebuilding of the temple. However, they're going to get it wrong <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, and we know from Scripture that um, 
right now, there's probably more war to come, but the Israelis just want peace. And they're going to want it so bad that they will worship the man who brings them peace. And we know that he will go to the temple. Uh, and it's very possible that after the war is to come, uh, he may somehow coordinate a, a treaty which allows them to rebuild the treat to rebuild the temple. So be watching what's happening with Israel right now. Um, we'll be talking next service about the wars to come. But at the end of wars, what do you find? There eventually is a peace, and that peace treaty may or may not have some big prophetic fulfillment. Uh, and that's what we want to be watching. But some things to be watching in April, they're going to be doing the Red Heifer Ceremony. So that's coming up in a couple of months. Um, and as I said, the, the Jewish expectation uh, for a Messiah is a complete worldview shift that has not happened in the Jewish world for quite some time. So we looked at what's kind of all led up to this, but what are we looking at next now for Israel in 2024? So that is the big question, and it is changing daily in the news. Um, and we want to look at it from a prophetic perspective. Where, what are the trends that Scripture talks about that we should be looking for when it comes to Israel? Uh, and so our first headline that's pulled up on the screen there is kind of what is next. Um, and uh, you'll see that it talks about how Israel is now preparing for a war on seven fronts. So it's not just Hamas but a potential expanded war. And one of the things we want to look at in Scripture is, does Scripture talk about an expanded war? And so next slide. Now, we don't know for sure what is going to happen next. And if, in fact, it will play into what prophecy talks about. But we won't know anything We're until that slide's pulled up. It keeps shutting down on us here, so I'm going to bring this back up here again. And... Uh, See if I can make this work here. It's going to take a moment to load. We'll be talking about the challenges of technology later in this service as well. So, Yes, we will be. All right. So we got Psalm 83 that we wanted to, to look at. So this is an interesting um, chapter of the Bible, Psalm 83. And there are differing uh, views among Christian scholars about the significance of this in terms of prophecy. Uh, Amir Tisfaris, a wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher, he has spoken here before, he has the perspective that this is actually fulfilled. This has not, or sorry, that this has already happened. Um, the, I would say the majority of kind of prophecy scholars that I interact with believe this is an event that is yet to happen. Uh, and so I did want to clarify that there are some, you know, differing views on this. And this is often called the inner circle war. And I'll explain why uh, kind of when we get to the next slides. But here are some of the countries that are involved in this conflict in Psalm 83. In fact, go back before I lose track of where they are. <laughs> so the Palestinians, and they're all used by either their ancient names uh, in Psalm 83 uh, or uh, even directly. And so the nations involved in this future war that's described are the Palestinians, the Jordanians, Syrians, uh, and I'm going to mention just a little bit of what Isaiah 17 in a minute, um, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, and Iraq. Um, what's interesting about the mention about um, Syria is in Isaiah 17, we have another prophecy on top of Isaiah 83 that talks about how Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, will become a ruinous heap. Now, right, you for almost a decade now, you've had a civil war in Syria, and you have had a lot of conflict in Syria. 
But the impression that Isaiah gives is that this city is completely annihilated to the point where no one even inhabits it anymore. And yes, it is pretty run down right now, but um, this event has not happened yet. And after the attack on uh, October 7th by Hamas, uh, there was correspondence between, um, I believe, the French and uh, Syria. The French still have relations with Syria. Israel does not. And Israel relayed to the French ambassador to relay to the Syrians, if you become involved in this conflict, we will, in these words, annihilate Damascus. Mm -hmm. That was the threat. Mm -hmm. And so you can see when scripture talks about this possibility of the capital of Syria being annihilated, that just happened in the last month, at least the threat of it. And so you can see how much closer we are to that happening in our day than the last 2,000 years. Damascus is one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world, and yet it is now being threatened with uh, annihilation. So, Yeah, it's good. We're going to talk about some other things that are going to potentially lead to, you know, the destruction of Damascus. Uh, we know Iran is certainly, you know, funneling things through there and is very much involved. But when we look at Psalm 83 war, there's another important war that we need to discuss, and that is the Ezekiel 38 war that many believe is is on the horizon as well. So take us through that a little bit on the differences. So one of the interesting things if you from that from this map and compared to the the previous map is the Psalm 83 war is often called the inner circle war. It's the, it's the countries that neighbor and border Israel seem to be involved in a conflict with Israel first. Uh, and um, one of the interesting things about Psalm 83 is it says let us come destroy them and wipe them out as a nation. Does that sound familiar for the motivation for Israel's neighbors and the warfare that they've had in 67 and 73 and to this day, their motivation seems to be hatred. And we see that very much on the headlines. We see the atrocities committed by Hamas. It's born out of a hatred of the Jewish people. And that's a bit different than how Ezekiel 38 is described. Uh, so Ezekiel 38 expands to, if you look on the map, to more of outward nations. And it's interesting, Ezekiel 38 does not include any of the nations mentioned in, in Psalm 83. So it does seem to make sense that these nations are no longer a factor because they are defeated by Israel. And now you have this Ezekiel 38 scenario, the outer nations. And yeah. the next slide kind of describes a little bit about who they are. Mm -hmm. And the primary nation, uh, as you can see from his picture up there, is Vladimir Putin of Russia, uh, one of the nations of the far north. And even though they're used by their ancient names in Ezekiel 38, you can trace their lineages back to modern day countries. Uh, and one of those primary countries is Russia. Uh, and another country as well is Turkey. Uh, and you also have Iran, Libya, and Sudan. Uh, Russia is currently bogged down in Ukraine, and it seems like uh, this potential scenario might be a little bit down the road, which would explain why the Psalm 83 scenario might happen first. Um, if you want to jump to the next slide. What's, what's interesting about Ezekiel 38 is just this specificity, uh, if that's a word, specifics, how do you say that word, but that one right there. Of all the nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38, though there's some ancient 
terms being used, we can trace those back to who they are today. And there's some very clear mention of countries right now. Uh, and what we see happening right now is the development. Over the last number of years, we've seen the development of the, the partnership uh, of these nations as evidenced here. Yeah, and one of the note about Iran in Psalm 83 is you see right now Iran uses what's called proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, and its forces in Lebanon, even uh, different militia groups in Iraq. And um, you can see how from Psalm 83, if all those nations are taken out, Iran is left with no choice but to get involved themselves. And so you see this, this, this growing uh, alliance with Russia uh, that has been growing year by year. Um, this week, uh, Russia and Iran announced that they are uh, no longer going to use the US dollar for trade. They are going to use their own currencies to swap. Uh, Russia helped fund uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program and had Russian scientists in there for years helping them develop and build. Uh, in Russia's war with the Ukraine, with, with Ukraine, Iran has been supplying them drones and other arms. So you see the military cooperation between those two countries especially uh, makes sense in light of the Ezekiel 38 scenario that you have Russia and Iran being uh, one of the main people. Up on the screen, you'll see the leaders of Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Uh, Erdogan of Turkey uh, is an interesting character. Um, he, this last week, compared Benjamin Netanyahu, the leader of Israel, to Hitler. Now, from a Jewish perspective, you can't get much worse as a leader being compared to Hitler. Uh, and at the beginning of the war, he had a rally in Turkey in which he suggested that Turkey might come to the aid of Gaza if this war does not end quickly. Uh, once again, this idea, will Russia and Iran and Turkey become involved in Israel? I would suggest you not yet, but the stage is being set with their alliance, the way they're helping one another, their economic alliance, and uh, if Iran's proxies are taken out, uh, Iran may be forced into a conflict with and, Israel. And that's a very interesting point, just with what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, you know, these outlying nations are having the opportunity to maneuver and position themselves and to come together uh, with Israel being so focused, and that's kind of you know what we're looking at in this next one here. And Iran is very smart. They see what's going on. The world's attention is on Israel and Hamas. And so what are they doing right now? They are escalating their nuclear program. Uh, and it needs to cross 90% uh, uh, enrichment in order for them to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, they had been on hold for quite some time because the US uh, essentially was kind of uh, well, it had a lot of their money. <laughs> and so Iran was in there trying to get in their good books, but now they have that money back. There's no motivation for Iran uh, to really play nice. And while the world's distracted, they are now going full throttle on their nuclear program. They have not crossed the 90% threshold for a reason. Uh, but once they do, the nuclear experts say it could only be two to three weeks before they would develop a nuclear bomb. The reason they have not gone past that threshold is essentially when they do, it means war with Israel. Israel has said, we will never let Iran become a nuclear country because uh, leader after leader of Iran has said, as soon as we get nukes, we will annihilate the Jewish people. So it's strike first or you don't have a second chance. And Israel has shown their willingness to take out 
the nuclear program of their enemies first. They did so in the 80s with Iraq, and after the Gulf War, many people were thankful they did, or that would have been a very different conflict. Uh, they also took out Syria's nuclear program uh, in the 90s as well. So they're not afraid to attack first if their life is on the line. And they have vowed if Iran goes nuclear, we will attack, and I have no doubt they will. And if they do, that may set the stage for Ezekiel 38. Um, one of the things that Ezekiel 38 describes is this conflict happens and God draws them down with a hook in the jaw. Yeah. It almost sounds like it's against their will. Well, if Israel attacks Iran's nuclear program, Iran and Russia and these other countries will have no choice but to retaliate. And it, will that be the hook in the jaw that draws them down? remains to be seen. So this is a bit of speculation as to where it could go, but in light of current events and where we're heading, it's good to be aware of what prophecy says and how these events may unfold. Yeah, exactly. And as far as what we can expect in 2024, well, this was a very interesting headline from the Jerusalem Post. What to expect in 2024? The IDF has dubbed 2024 the year of war. And so what can we expect the rest of this year? Uh, no doubt we're going to see more conflict. Yeah. Absolutely. I thought this was interesting as far as the concept of an expanded or uh, you know, a, a growing war. It almost became that in the early days of this conflict. Um, Biden convinced Netanyahu to halt a preemptive strike against Hezbollah. And... Uh, that's pretty important. Hezbollah um, is probably five times the army size and armaments of Hamas. And in a rather ironic way, the Hamas attack, as awful as it was, may have prepared Israel for the conflicts to come. Because if it was Hezbollah who attacked, this would be a much, much different war and conflict than just Hamas. And as you can see from the news, Israel seems to be taking care of Hamas. It, warfare is never easy, never nice, but they seem to be making progress. The concern now is what if this war expands, and it almost did from that headline. They were ready to ta attack Hezbollah, and uh, Biden convinced them not to. Yeah. So. And we think about Israel, who's really had, you know, U.S. and and Canada, in part, as close allies and supporters, and now the weakness of these nations that we've seen in the last, you know, few years, like Israel really is finding themselves standing more and more alone, which is also causing nations around them to have a little bit more, uh, you know, boldness coming against them. Yeah, if you look at UN resolutions against Israel in the second service, you can go back and see the amount of UN resolutions against Israel is more than all the other nations combined. And yet you have countries like Iran, who ironically sits on the Human Rights Council for Women. Uh, you have North Korea, and yet 40% of the resolutions were against Israel. So the world is turning on Israel, uh, and you're gonna see a lot more of that in the days ahead as the conflict continues. Yeah, so. so again, if this expands to uh, the Psalm 83 scenario, uh, you're likely to see not just Hezbollah get involved, but Hezbollah is kind of the next big player in the region. Uh, they have five times the amount of missiles. What's distinct about the Hezbollah missiles is many of them are uh, guided missiles, whereas Hamas is kind of throwing their missiles out, don't know where they're gonna land, and they often don't do a lot of damage. Hezbollah, that's not the case. 
Uh, and if you want to jump to the next slide, the other thing to recognize with Hezbollah's missiles is its range. Hamas missiles do not have a lot of range. They're not accurate, and they don't have the ability to hit the whole country. Hezbollah, on the other hand, as you can tell from this map, and I don't think you can quite see the, uh, the amount of seconds that are needed, but once Hezbollah fires their missiles, they have 120 seconds to get in their bomb shelters. 120 seconds. Uh, and the other thing is, even though Israel has the Iron Dome defense system, which had served it well in shooting down a lot of missiles, Hezbollah has, I think it's 150,000 missiles they can just completely overwhelm the Iron Dome by their sheer number. And so Israel knows a conflict with Hezbollah means missiles all over the country uh, in large number, and they're not going to be able to shoot them all down. Yeah. Just recently, uh, the world against Israel, this is, uh, as, you, as I said, you're going to see this growing. Uh, the most recent vote uh, on the, the ceasefire was 153 to 10. Uh, unfortunately, Canada was a part of that. But the UN has yet to have a vote condemning Hamas. And that's kind of the double standard that you see uh, throughout, unfortunately, the United Nations is uh, they won't even condemn Hamas uh, because they know they, they can't get enough votes. Yeah. So right. that's right. so sad. So here's where that's all heading here. So prophetically speaking, where is kind of all this leading? Um, there is going to eventually be a push for peace. And as Christians, we want to see peace, but we should also not be blind to where this peace is heading, especially from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States is, of course, facing an election year, and uh, many on the left are not happy with Biden's uh, support of Israel at this point. I personally don't think it will last, but uh, it's an election year. He has to appease the base, uh, and part of that is pushing a peace treaty. And a peace treaty uh, is something you want to have on your radar uh, from a scriptural point of view, from Mm -hmm. Daniel. Uh, Brent, I don't know if you want to add a little bit to why a peace treaty is significant uh, that we should be looking for. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what everybody's waiting for in the Middle East. And we see what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9 of the one that's going to come and bring about that peace. And that's going to be through the Antichrist, who Israel is going to accept and see as their Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. He's going to masquerade himself as a great political figure that's going to bring this peace into the Middle East that everybody's been trying and attempting to do, and he's going to achieve that. And we talked about um, how that's going to also be incorporated with the, the third temple that looked at that in the previous service. And so uh, they're all waiting for peace. Israel's waiting for the building of their temple. And that's going to be accomplished through what the Bible says is the coming world leader, the Antichrist. Yeah, what we uh, talked about in the second service is this uh, revival that's happening in Israel. Jewish people moving to Israel, but there's a revival of their faith in Israel and around the world. And part of that is a messianic expectation. They are returning to this belief that their hope is the Messiah, For the most part of its recent history, most Jews are secular. They are Jewish by birth, but not necessarily by faith. Since October 7th, that has changed. The Jewish people are reconnecting with their faith. They're looking for a Messiah. The challenge is, who are they expecting as their Messiah? And as there is warfare and will be more war, they're going to become so tired of war that their Messiah will be simply the one who brings them peace. 
And that is setting the stage for deception. Exactly. So right now, you're going to hear a lot about this in the news. The current solution for peace in the Middle East is to give the Gaza Strip to Fatah, which is the group that controls the West Bank. Uh, and it's important to understand how the current peace process is, is playing out and where it may lead. Um, just to read what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said about this idea of peace with uh, the Palestinian Authority taking over the Gaza Strip. As of this moment, the Palestinian Authority senior leadership simply refuses to condemn the October 7th massacre, and some of them even praise it openly. They will control Gaza on the day after, question mark. Haven't we learned anything? As the Prime Minister of Israel, I will not allow that to happen. Hamastan will not become Fatistan. The debate between Hamas and Fatah is not whether to eliminate the state of Israel, but how to do it. Netanyahu said. According to a poll that was carried out a few days ago, 82% of the Palestinian population in Judea and Samaria justifies the massacre of October 7th. The policy of the Prime Minister is very, very clear. The PA is paying terrorist families pay for slay. The PA is educating its kids to be murderers. They're not going to de-radicalize Gaza. Somebody else has to do it. And this could be setting the prophetic stage as well. So who? <laughs> who is going to bring peace to the Middle East? Who is going to propose some kind of solution? Uh, and there's already talk about Gaza being handed over to the United Nations. Um, and currently the West Bank is double the size of Gaza, and the leader of the Fatah right now is Mahmoud Abbas, but he is near death. They, they think he's not going to last too much longer. So there's going to be a power vacuum coming, and there's going to be a lot of... Uh, political chaos as people search for someone to have a plan. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and so this idea that the UN might have a role in Gaza is interesting because now you have international leaders, countries, troops coming into Israel and playing a role. Uh, and we know from scripture that one day there will be a peace treaty and there will be a global leader who brings about that peace. What's interesting is it says that he will guarantee a peace. And what you see right now is you have agreements between nations, but you have an outside third party saying, I'm going to guarantee that peace. I'm going to, I'm going to be overseeing it. And so whether this current conflict is going to lead to peace and the treaty of Daniel 9.27, or if it leads to a temporary peace that the Antichrist will then come on the scene and offer to guarantee. In other words, how do the Israelis and Palestinians trust one another for a treaty? They can't. They won't. They need a third party. And so the thing to watch is, is there going to be someone who appears on the scene and offers to guarantee the peace? That is what we as believers from Scripture need to be watching for. And, and what's exciting about all that, guys, is uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that the Antichrist is not going to be revealed until he which restrains is removed. And he that restrains, I believe, is the Holy Spirit, but not the Holy Spirit himself. It's the Holy Spirit at work in and through the church. It's when the church 
is removed, then the Antichrist will be revealed. So if we see all these things beginning, it seems, to fall into place for an Antichrist to come onto the scene, if we're seeing all these things happening, how much more sooner do we expect than the rapture to happen? I believe we're living in very exciting times right now. So just switching gears a little bit. You can't get away from the news with Israel. It's going to be in the news every day. I encourage you to rewatch the first two services to get a, again a better understanding of what's going to happen there. But switching gears a little bit, uh, if there is going to be someone who kind of appears on the scene with uh, a political plan, Scripture also says he is going to have a lot of tools uh, at his disposal that uh, is described in Scripture that uh, Chuck Mister often used to refer to these as technology statements. In other words, if John, who is writing this uh, 2,000 years ago, had to try and describe what he saw, he used the best words and, and that he could to describe what he saw. But as we look at technology developed today, we kind of go, hmm, maybe John was describing something in terms of technology, or is it supernatural? And that's something I think we need to really keep an open mind on when we're reading Revelation. Yes, there's a lot of metaphors used, but when there are verses that describe something that seems to be an element of technology, I think we need to have an open mind. Is it technology or is it supernatural? Uh, and Randy, you had a, a great illustration of the uh, Revelation and the uh, demons from the pit, what that might be. Do you want to share that? I did. Yeah, the, the helicopter. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Did you guys mute me? See, <laughs> you need to speak up more. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I was talking, like, Roman, or sorry, Revelation 9 talks about this strange locust that, look, that has a description of, like, looking like a human and stinging and all these weird things. So I was just looking around at uh, attack helicopters, and I came across the, uh, I was looking to buy one, and I, <laughs> turns out I can't afford one. But anyway. Uh, it was the Pakistani Thunderbolt attack helicopter. It is the most bizarre looking. I wish we had a photo yeah, of it. But look it up. Not now, of course, because you got to pay attention. But if you get a chance, Google a Pakistani Thunderbolt attack helicopter. It is one strange looking helicopter. I was just thinking of, you know, if John was looking at something like that um, and then trying to describe it, it's, it's strange. I mean, it doesn't have hair on it like he described but it's um it's just a really strange looking piece of technology that helps you understand that what john was trying to communicate would be very difficult to do yeah you think about how he alluded to it with breastplates of iron the sounds of chariots and when you're near a helicopter and even the face of a man you look inside the helicopter there he is inside the helicopter you kind of go wow is that what he's describing Maybe, or is it in fact demonic in nature? And yeah. and if it is, we're going to see um, some Marvel movies come to life really quick. So uh, we don't know for sure. But uh, so when it comes to technology, uh, there's a number of uh, statements in Scripture. Um, we, yeah, we do have it pulled up there. So many of you are familiar with Chat GPT and AI technology, artificial intelligence technology, and uh, it needs to be said, technology itself is neutral. Technology is not bad. And there have been Christians throughout uh, the modern times who have opposed technology because they're afraid of technology. And I think it needs to be said, technology is not bad. But how it's used is where it becomes bad. And we shouldn't be ignorant to 
how technology could be used in the wrong hands, because we like to think technology is great, but imagine today's technology in the hands of Hitler and what he could have done. And yet we see scripture describes a time coming where the Antichrist will have tools at his disposal. So this, is, this was really, it's a little bit lengthy, but really fascinating. So ChatGPT, for those of you not familiar with it, is artificial intelligence technology. It's trained on data essentially from the internet, um, and it's extremely uh, intelligent to give a response, to think on its own. So a Christian researcher last year posed the question to ChatGPT and asked, could ChatGPT have a role in the end times? Kind of interesting, ChatGPT answering the question, does ChatGPT have a role in the end times? So let's go through this because you're going to see artificial intelligence technology rapidly increase uh, every week, if not every month, in our news. So. And we've seen that. Even We talked about ChatGPT in our last prophecy update last year. It was just coming out, right? We yes. talked about that last year. Very interesting. And uh, we explored that a little bit. But in this past year, how we've seen this grow and uh, many other companies coming out with their own versions, such. We'll get into that. But yeah. So let's read along here. So uh, when ChatGPT was introduced in 2022, a Christian researcher asked the bot to write an article on how AI, like ChatGPT, could potentially fulfill the image of the beast, prophecy in Revelation 13. What an ironic way to approach the subject. Here was ChatGPT's answer. The image of the beast as described in the book of Revelation is a symbol of the end times, representing a powerful and manipulative force that deceives and controls people. In today's world, chatbots and other artificial intelligence programs are becoming increasingly prevalent and sophisticated, raising the question of whether they could potentially fulfill the prophecy of the image of the beast. One way in which chatbots could potentially fulfill this prophecy is through their ability to manipulate and deceive people. Chatbots are designed to mimic human conversation and can be programmed to present themselves as real people, leading some people to form emotional connections with them. This can be particularly dangerous in cases where chatbots are used to impersonate real people or organizations in order to scam or manipulate individuals. Another way in which chatbots could fulfill the prophecy of the image of the beast is through their potential to control people's actions and behaviors. Chatbots can be programmed to persuade and influence people's decisions, and as they become more advanced, they may be able to anticipate and manipulate people's thoughts and behaviors in increasingly sophisticated ways. Finally, chatbots could potentially fulfill the prophecy of the image of the beast through their ability to access and analyze vast amounts of personal data. Many chatbots are connected to the internet and have access to a wide range of data sources, including social media profiles, online search histories, and more. This data can be used to create detailed profiles of individuals and to predict and influence their actions and behaviors. Overall, while chatbots and other artificial intelligence programs have the potential to bring many benefits to society, it's important to be aware of the risks they pose and to consider the ethical implications of their use. In the end, only time will tell whether chatbots will fulfill the prophecy of the image of the beast or bring about a brighter humanity. Wow. And so along those same lines, we have advancement in AI. Uh, we have now, of course, competing 
artificial intelligence platforms, Google being one of the biggest now, they just recently introduced their Gemini platform. Uh, and so w when there's competition between the big players and tech, they're all in a race now to develop it faster and faster and faster. Uh, and so you're going to see uh, Google Gemini start to become pretty prominent. Uh, one thing that's unique about the, the Gemini platform they're introducing is they think that it's only a matter of time before it becomes real time. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's, it's like talking to someone in person in real time who knows everything about you. And that's pretty interesting because when you look at Revelation and how it describes um, this uh, image of the beast, uh, being ever, coming to life. If you were to try and describe artificial, artificial intelligence 2,000 years ago, John did a pretty good job, if it is in fact that's what he's referring to in this image of the beast, because it, it says that it breathed life into this image. It's an image that seems like it's real. And people today cannot identify whether they're talking to a bot or not on the internet. And sad to say, there are a growing number, mainly single men, who are corresponding with females online. They're not even real. They are bots. And they're sometimes knowingly, sometimes not deceiving people. Uh, and there's another trend as well in what's called deep fakes. In other words, the deep fake technology is becoming so advanced, you don't know what's real and what's not online because they can imitate images, voices, and all of a sudden, you start to lose your trust mm -hmm. in what is real and what is not. And uh, ChatGPT and artificial intelligence uh, is playing a big part of that. Absolutely. And again, just what we read about in Revelation here, uh, Mark of the Beast, technology, we're seeing so many things coming out now, unrolling, becoming very commonplace for people, the very things that John describes in Revelation with the mark of the beast, being able to buy, sell, being able to, you know, move around, do different things unless you have the mark. And nobody's been sure what that mark exactly is. Um, but yet we're seeing this technology that's advancing the way that we function, the way that we do business, buy and sell, the very things that Revelation talks about. We got a video that uh, lays it out for us here. When Elias Brotberger goes to work, he doesn't need ID, and he doesn't need money. In fact, much of what he needs to get through the day is hidden right there, just below the surface, in his hand. Like touch it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, weird, yeah, it's yeah. like a grain of rice. Yeah, a grain of rice. Embedded in his hand is a microchip that serves as his keys, his ID, and his wallet. Yeah, it's all in chips, so I use it like to get around the building. Buy snacks. Yeah, exactly. Let's buy some snacks. Exactly. So I can't open it. No. Okay. So what I need to do is I need to first blip my chip and it will log me in. Mm -hmm. And from there I get access to the fridge. Popular TV shows like Black Mirror have imagined chips as part of a dystopian future. Install ingrain procedure with local anesthetic and you're good to go. In Sweden, the microchips are already here. The microchip implants use the same technology that's in contactless credit cards. Which have made cash pretty much obsolete in Sweden. No cash. At this tech fair, a chipping event for those on the cutting edge, merging their hands with this new technology. I thought it would be fun, right? The process is simple and swift. A pinch of the skin, and in a matter of seconds, the chip is inserted. 
the transformation is complete. As for the pain... I barely felt it. But even in this nation of early adopters, not everyone is racing to get chipped. Feel less human. I will feel like a robot. I think, I mean, it's so much more data can go into this, you know, when it's in your body. There's no central registry tracking how many people are chipped, but biohacker Hannes Wellblood estimates between five and 10,000. In the future, do you think everyone is going to be chipped? I think it'll be voluntary, but I am certainly convinced that millions of people will find it very, very valuable to have a smart device under their skin. Human microchipping may be our future, but in Sweden, it's already reality. Sarah Harmon, NBC News, Stockholm. Hey, NBC News fans, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here. It's supposed to, it's supposed to end, interview. but... Right. <laughs> we didn't need that, but... Yeah, so uh, these things get presented as such you know, conveniences for people. And it is very tempting to have, you know, everything just in one spot, your wallet, your ID, everything. But uh, we are seeing how these things have been, again, prophesied in Revelation, that this is going to be something that's going to be tied to the Antichrist. Yeah, and it's, oh, it always starts off voluntary. Yeah. This is a great convenience. And so a lot of people adopt it for convenience. Um, and you're already seeing that uh, with, uh, I'm not sure there's a Whole Foods in Canada, but in the U.S., the Whole Foods, uh, which is owned by Amazon, now have the ability for you to walk in and walk out of grocery stores and wave your hand. You don't need to go to the cash register. Uh, you just access it through the waving of the hand. Uh, Panera Bread, which I know is here, uh, they are also adopting the same pay-by-hand technology. Uh, and so it's spreading. Uh, it is still, I would say, on the fringe. It's not something mainstream, but the technology is there. Now we just need the, the, the right global circumstances to steamroll everyone needing this technology. Uh, and the UN is happy to be behind that. They have a thing called Agenda 230. Uh, and uh, they had a meeting uh, about two months ago, and they realized, hmm, we have all these things we want to accomplish in this, in this agenda, and we're falling behind. We need to pick up the pace. So the UN has said one of the things they would like to see is by 2030 at least have all the technology in place so there could be a digital ID. And so you merge this biotechnology uh, of, of a potential chip that has your digital wallet, your passport, your health records, uh, and all kinds of other information all on one ship. And this is what the United Nations is proposing be developed by 2030. So it's a little way down the road, but it's coming. Yeah. And uh, again, it's a, it's a giving up of privacy and uh, rights. Again, being packaged out of convenience for you. Now, keep in mind, uh, nobody can take the mark of the beast right now because the beast is not on the scene. The Antichrist is not here. A lot of people freak out over every little thing. Ah, don't do that. That's the mark of the beast. You're going to go to hell, you know, everything like that. No, nobody is taking the mark of the beast right now. Uh, you could, you know, fall prey to some of these things. It's not the mark of the beast right now. It might be what leads into the mark of the beast, but it's not right now. So, you know, we need the Antichrist on the scene in order to take the mark of the beast. And we know, as we've seen, uh, we believe that we're not going to be here as a church when the Antichrist is revealed, so we're not going to have to worry about that. I think that's probably one of the biggest um, fears I've ever heard about in prophecy is, what if I accidentally take the mark? Yeah. 
be rest assured, you cannot accidentally worship someone. It is an act of the will. And when the Antichrist comes on the scene, those who receive his mark do so as an act of worship. So can you accidentally take the mark? No, it is an act of worship. You actively give yourself an allegiance to someone. So be rest assured about that, because I hear that all the time. What if I accidentally take the mark? So good. Uh, Just in terms of what the UN is doing right now and how it might speed up this process of getting all of us to accept a digital ID is it wants what's called the internet of trust. Uh, And because of misinformation, AI technology, deep fakes, how do you know what is real? And they're saying people are losing confidence in using the internet because they they don't know what's real. So there is this idea that perhaps uh, we need to authenticate who uses the internet to keep out criminals and other things. And on the surface, that sounds good. But it goes down this path of, well, the only way you can access the internet is to have a digital ID. How many of you would get a digital ID if you needed to access your cell phones? Mm -hmm. It's a question you may not want to answer right now, but one day you might. And again, technology is not in itself evil, but this is where we're heading. And this is what the UN wants, this internet of trust. Um, And I'll jump to the next slide. This is just speculation on my part, but what would steamroll this whole process? There's growing talk of global cyber attacks. You don't hear about them, but if you're in the tech world, you know about the frequency of cyber attacks. There's been cyber attacks going on between Hamas and Israel and Iran for quite a bit now. But what if there was a cyber Pearl Harbor? And what I mean by that is a cyber attack that took out the infrastructure of our country. We know it's susceptible to cyber attack, What if our utilities went down and our transportation was shut down and thus there was no trucks to deliver food, no power at the gas station, no gas? The implications of a mass cyber attack, when you start thinking through what would happen if things were shut down, uh, it's pretty scary. And if you add the loss of life to that, if there was a mass casualty attack that shut down something with the water purification and it poisoned hundreds of thousands of people, all it's going to take is one event like that, and the government's going to say, we need to authenticate who's on the internet to stop the cyber attacks. We need to prove who you are, and you know what? The whole world will go along with it, because we're going to be scared. We're going to do exactly what the government says, and history has shown we'll go along with what the government says when we're scared. So, yeah. so we're going to wrap this up here. We've got a few more slides. We're going to just run through this quickly, but... You know, some things we can learn here? So we can look to China to learn about how could the government control us on such an individual level. And China has what's called the social credit system, and they use a form of digital ID to give a ranking to people, like a number just like your credit score. And some of you are terrified at the idea of the government giving you a, a, a credit score. But this won't just be based on finances. This will be based on a way to coerce you into government um, uh, doing what they want, essentially. And so let me just tell you what's happening in China and how the government could use that here with a digital ID system. So all citizens receive an identity number that'll be linked to constantly updated uh, score based on observed behaviors, including who you associate with, and that's significant. Some of those good behaviors include giving blood, volunteer work, financial good standing, attending Communist Party meetings. These good behaviors can result in better interest rates. Who doesn't want better interest rates? Better jobs. Uh, Promoted profile on the biggest dating site. This is something in China. 
Uh, you get better matches if you have yeah. a better score. Uh, discounts on utility bills like energy, uh, skipping lines while traveling. Wow, that all sounds great. <laughs> um, some of the bad behaviors, outstanding bills, violating traffic laws, posting fake news, uh, or hate online, buying too many video games, uh, smoking in non-smoking zones, and some of the punishments are blocking travel, slowing down your internet speed, that would be probably the worst of all, uh, reducing access to good schools, uh, barring people from certain jobs, losing the right to own pets, uh, blocking you from purchasing property, um, and it should also be reiterated that part of the rating comes from people around you. And this is, again, that mass control type um, ideology behind it. There is a new app in China that if someone within 500 yards of you is in debt, it's going to basically alert you because you can't be seen associating with people who have bad scores. So uh, you might lose a lot of friends uh, depending where you're, you're standing there. But imagine this scenario. Imagine if your association with Riverside Calvary Chapel or Brent or Randy resulted in taking points off your score. And every Sunday you attend, ding, 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 you'd, be pretty, you'd have to be pretty motivated to be here on yeah. Sunday. And yet that shows you the, the association coercion they use to control the population. And their own stats show that 20 million people were discredited from being able to buy plane tickets and 6 million were restricted from train, high-speed trade uh, because of their scores. And you can see this form of manipulation. Um, and how is all this possible? The growing surveillance state where they see everything. They have uh, 626 uh, million cameras currently operating in China. Uh, and they're rolling out millions more. And we know here there are cameras, we just don't always see them. And that allows them to see what's going on and, and that making sure you behave. So this is kind of where this form of control is going. It's in China, but the technology is there and it wouldn't take much to bring it here too. Yeah. So. Uh, this is significant, especially since this just happened last week. You're getting breaking prophecy news right now. Yeah. Most people, unless you maybe have a European background, are not aware of what is happening in Europe. And this is lengthy a little bit, but extremely important. This just happened last week. Uh, the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union reached a final agreement this week, referring to last week, on the establishment of the European Digital Identity Wallet the first central and fully digital identification system for all Europeans. Wow, yeah, it's huge. here. Under the new law, the EU will offer its citizens so-called digital wallets on a voluntary basis at first, which will contain digital versions of their ID cards, driving licenses, diplomas, medical records, bank account information. These documents will be recognized as a means to access online services throughout Europe. Sound familiar? Uh, and citizens will be able to prove their identity or share electronic documents from their wallets with the click of a button. This marks an important step towards the digital decade 2030, sound familiar, e, uh, from the UN, on the digitization of public services. All EU citizens will be offered the possibility to have an EU di digital identity wallet to access public and private online services. Next slide. Uh, the agreement reached by the legislatures is now subject to formal approval by the European Parliament and Council. That's the good news. It is not official. It has passed one branch of their government, but it's only a matter of time before it's approved, probably in the next two to three months. 
Uh, the agreement follows on the heels of the G20 summit in September, where the leading global economies agreed to build the necessary infrastructure to implement digital currencies and IDs, the US and Canada included. The agreement came just a few weeks after Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, announced that the European Union was also moving towards the development of its new central bank digital currencies that is also coming, because it all ties together. Edward Dowd, the founder uh, of that technology company and the author of The Cause Unknown, has long warned that any CBDC, which is a digital currency, will be a system of totalitarian control tied to a Chinese-style social credit score. See, I'm not lying to you. He warned that 100% of the digital system would be controlled centrally and that a person's money could potentially be limited to a particular geographical area. Such a totalitarian system, he argued, could also allow the state to limit to people on what they're allowed to buy. Imagine no more currencies for Bibles. What are you going to do? Let's say I want to mandate a vaccine. Hmm. Your financial transaction ability can be turned off if you don't comply. I wonder if we saw that during the trucker protest. Your access to your financial assets can be denied or stopped if you don't do what you're told. The idea of a digital ID system is not entirely new. In some countries, digital identification has already been implemented for government and services and online banking. However, expanding the use of digital IDs to cover all online activities would be a significant step towards global ID for everyone. No ID, no access. Would change the nature of identification and verification systems worldwide. And while it might seem to make sense on some levels, the threat to personal freedoms, the potential for abuse by government is vast. Wow. So we are uh, heading into a very interesting year, not only a big election year in the States, but uh, an ongoing war in the Middle East that uh, could very well be increasing. And uh, here's some other things to be kind of looking ahead to for 2024. We'll wrap it up with this slide here just for things to be watching, because I felt this was something where you're going to see a lot of um, prophetic significance if they continue to go along the path they are. And this is what's known as the Summit of the Future. And this is going to take place in the fall of 2024. Uh, they'll be pushing at this summit for the idea of global governance and a digital ID. Uh, but the idea behind it is to conclude the summit with what's known as the Pact for the Future, which will be endorsed by the heads of the states of the different governments who are attending this summit. Um, Biden has, in the U.S. has already indicated he will sign. I have no doubt Trudeau would do the same if he's still around. Uh, the U.N. openly admits that the summit of the future is to put in place a stronger international response to global shocks maximizing the use of the Secretary General's convening power in the form of an emergency platform. Key in this last sentence, the United Nations will be given authority to ensure there's a unified global response to the next crisis. In other words, global governments. So the nations of the world are coming together this fall to basically give their sovereignty to the United Nations in the event there's another global crisis, whether health or cyber attack or something, to say, UN, you now control what happens. And this is all kind of tying in with what scripture said with Israel, with a potential UN leader bringing a plan to Israel, having the technology at his disposal, the pieces are all falling together into the puzzle. Yeah, there so. you go. Very good. Well, Kate, it's been awesome to have you here. And again, um, we don't want these updates. And anytime we're talking uh, about prophecy, we don't want any of these things to 
worry or concern anybody. Sometimes people study this so much that they just get freaked out by what's going on in the world. That's never the intention, and it should not be the result. As we look at prophecy, the result should be that we have a greater hope that the very God that wrote the Bible is the one that's in control. He's already laid it out for us, and we see these things falling into place just as he said it will. The Bible says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And we thank the Lord for that. So, keep your eyes on Jesus. And uh, yeah, days are interesting, but the days are exciting. And uh, we have a blessed hope in the Lord Jesus. So, with that, let's pray. Randy, do you want to just... Uh, Close us in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you, uh, one, for Kate being able to come out and just share this with us. And, Father, it's, um, it's so amazing that we have your word. And when we think about technology where it's becoming impossible to know what's real and what isn't real, we have your scriptures. And we have to cling to that. And we have to make sure that, Lord, I, I encourage people even here just to make sure they have a physical Bible that they can access because we don't even know, Lord, if we can trust what's going to be online in the next year or two or five or whatever it is, Lord. So like Pastor Brent was saying, we just, we don't want to get afraid. We don't want to be scared. We want to be encouraged. And I think all this information that we um, got today just through Cade, Lord, helps us to know that our time here is probably somewhat short. And as much as we may long to see you, and we do, Lord, we'd l we would love to have the rapture occur right now. Uh, but there are so many people in the world who need you and don't know you or currently are just um, wandering around aimlessly, wondering what's going on. Lord, use us to share the gospel. Use us to reach out to people and help them to understand that your word is true it is absolute truth, and it has predicted what is going to happen. And we can use that to prove to people that your word is true. So, Father, I just thank you for our pastor. I thank you for Cade. I thank you for this facility that you've given us. I thank you for this body. And I pray, Lord, that uh, when we leave here today, we, uh, we just really understand our need to really begin to reach out and proclaim the gospel. Because so many people need you. They need the hope that you, you give and provide. So bless our time as we go ahead, Lord. And may we keep looking up, but not in fear, just in hope. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.